On Sunday, June 9th, I spent an amazing day with my daughter and her best friend at the Philadelphia Pride Parade. This was their first time at Philly Pride, and it was like watching someone who'd never before seen the sky or had never seen an actual rainbow. If you've never been to the Philly Pride Parade or a Pride event in your city, I cannot encourage you enough to go. If you're heterosexual, it's important to show up as an ally, as someone who will stand up for members of the LGBTQ community. And if you are a member of that community and you've never attended a Pride event or parade, I think you'd feel so welcomed and valued, so accepted. No matter who you are or what your sexual orientation is, it's a place about love, loving yourself and loving others free from judgment. This year's Pride Parade kicked off in an area of the city called the Gaberhood. This part of Philadelphia was named the Gaberhood in October 1995 during the city's first outfest in honor of National Coming Out Day. David Warner of the Philadelphia City Paper changed up the lyrics to Mr. Rogers' famous song and said, It's a beautiful day in the Gaberhood. Yeah, I can't possibly say that without singing it. And I know I can't sing for shit, so sorry, guys. You're stuck with my horrible voice. The Gaberhood sits in the Washington Square West neighborhood. You know you've arrived in one of the most beautiful sections of Philadelphia because in 2007, Philly installed 36 Rainbow Street signs between 11th and Broad and Walnut and Pine to recognize the gay history in our city. The theme of this year's Pride Parade was Stonewall 50, commemorating the Stonewall Riot in 1969, which lasted for six days after New York City police raided a gay club in Greenwich Village called the Stonewall Inn. For a week, people protested and fought with law enforcement. This riot was considered the start of a lasting change in the rights for LGBTQ persons. But in Philadelphia, rallies were happening in the years before the Stonewall Riot. Long before my daughter and I put glitter on our faces and screamed with joy along thousands of other people on Locust Street as we were showered with confetti and rainbow dust, the gay community of Philadelphia was shouting to be heard, shouting for the same rights as their friends and family, shouting so they wouldn't have to spend Monday through Friday at the office projecting one view of their lives and a different one in private on the weekend. This is a story about Philadelphia's gay history from the 60s through last week's incredible Pride Parade, and some of the history makers who made such a difference in our city's LGBTQ community. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this week's Not-So-Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast, True Crime, Haunted History, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. Philadelphia's LGBTQ parade will start at 13th and Locust Streets in the heart of the Gaberhood. The nation's birthplace was one of the first cities in the United States with a pride parade that started in 1972. Many planning to attend say it's still needed today. Being black and gay and being rejected from churches to religion, wherever we go, this is just not right. We're human just like everybody else. 
Pride started as a riot, as a protest. Um, and to know that, you know, this year is the 50th anniversary of that. I know New York is going huge, but I know Philly goes just as huge. <laughs> um, so I know this tomorrow is going to be a great time. 2018 marked the 30th Pride Day in Philadelphia, hosted by Philly Pride Presents. And the first Pride March in the city happened in 1972, when over 10,000 people marched from Rittenhouse Square to Independence Hall. Dewey's Restaurant in Rittenhouse Square on 17th Street was the site of Philadelphia's first documented protest for gay rights back in April 1965. Dewey's was a chain of burger joints in the Philadelphia and surrounding areas. And this particular location stopped serving customers they said demonstrated, and this is a quote, improper behavior. So you might think that meant some kids were being loud or annoying other customers. Well, that's not what it meant. It meant people who were gay, people who wore, and this is another quote, nonconformist clothing, as in wearing clothing that didn't match your gender. So they stopped serving drag queens, too. Dewey's also stopped serving people they believed were sex workers. On April 25th, 1965, three teenagers, two boys and a girl, who were refused service, refused to leave the restaurant. Four people were arrested that afternoon, those three teenagers, and a local gay rights leader named Clark Polak, who founded the gay magazine Drum, as in, dance to the beat of your own drummer. Throughout the following week, gay rights activists protested outside Dewey's. They distributed literature about gay rights, and a second sit-in was held on May 5, 1965. Remarkably, even though the police were called that day, no one was arrested and Dewey's stopped being bigoted assholes and began again serving all customers. Two months later, a small group of gay activists held peaceful protests in front of Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell. These demonstrations were called annual reminder days as a way to remind other people that members of the LGBTQ community didn't have the same rights as everyone else. These activists held the first Reminder Day on July 4th, 1965, and these events continued for the next five years through 1969. According to Bob Sibka, archivist at the William Way LGBTQ Community Center, the first Reminder Day drew less than 50 demonstrators, and very few of these people were from Philadelphia because locals were worried someone would recognize them. This was during a time when people risked not only losing their job if they were gay, but criminal prosecution, because it wasn't until 1980 that the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court ruled the state's sodomy laws among same-sex persons were unconstitutional. Starting back in 1964 through 1969, here in Philadelphia, brave group of people would protest and march in front of Independence Hall every July 4th, and women were to wear dresses, and men were to wear suits, and essentially it was to say that we are a community that exists here in the United States and the world. And these were brave men and women. These were people at the time were profiled by the FBI because they weren't really quite sure what they were up to. These were people who lost jobs, who lost friends and family. One of the earliest activists in Philadelphia who championed gay rights not only here but in other parts of the country, someone who helped launch the Reminder Days, was a woman named Barbara Giddings. Giddings was a student at Northwestern University in the late 1940s, and as a young woman and a lesbian, she had no support system in a world that not only criminalized her and other women like her, but a world where physicians considered homosexuality to be a mental illness. In 1956, during a trip to California, 
Barbara met women in an organization called the Daughters of Belitis. This was a group of women who wanted to change the way people treated and thought about homosexuals. This group was the first lesbian civil rights group in the United States. Back in Philadelphia, Barbara Giddings was one of the organizers of the first annual Reminder Days. She worked with activists in New York City to organize the first gay rights march on the anniversary of the Stonewall Riot. She launched a chapter of the Daughters of Belitis in New York, and in the 70s, along with other gay rights activists, she went up against the American Psychiatric Association to educate doctors about homosexuality. This was in an effort to get them to understand that sexual orientation wasn't a mental illness. In 1973, Barbara Giddings and fellow activist Frank Kameny, who was a veteran and a doctor of astronomy that lost his government job in the late 50s because he was gay, were invited to the American Psychiatric Association Conference. They were invited. These are the people who protested the conference in earlier years. Their efforts in 1972 went so far as to convince psychiatrists they were wrong in their beliefs about homosexuality that not only were Giddings and Kameny invited to the 1973 conference, but the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from their list of disorders. On October 1st, 2012, a section of Locust Street at 13th was named Barbara Giddings Way in honor of her tireless dedication to gay rights throughout her life everywhere, and especially here in Philadelphia. Philadelphia in the 50s through the 70s was not what I would call the city of brotherly love or sisterly affection for gay men and women. We already know that period was incredibly difficult and sometimes deadly for other minority communities in Philly. It was doubly hard for African-American men and women in the gay community. The area of the city, which we affectionately refer to as the gayborhood, had a thriving nightlife in the 40s, especially along Locust Street. It was filled with clubs and theaters, But over the course of the next 20 years, so many of those theaters closed, buildings were torn down, and the city really turned its back on Locust Street. While I was researching the history of that part of the city, I found an article in a 1971 edition of the Philadelphia Inquirer. This article referred to Locust as Lurid Locust Street, Sin City, and the Barbary Coast. The Barbary Coast was a red light district in San Francisco in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Apparently, an Inquirer reporter by the name of Ray Holton was given $100 by his editor to, as Ray put it, see if he could lose that money along Locust Street. And I don't mean lose it as in it fell out of his pocket, but lose as in could Ray resist the temptations of Locust Street, which at that time were primarily strip clubs. That was the equivalent of about 600 bucks in today's money. And poor Ray spent all of it in two hours. He was basically tag-teamed by dancers and barmaids. The dancer would come up and say, hey, do you want some company? While the barmaid poured her a drink and took the money for that drink out of the reporter's tab. I don't know that I would call that lurid. I wouldn't call strip clubs lurid. 
I'd call that particular experience manipulative, but this was a story of heterosexual, consensual adults. These bars, along with gay clubs that had moved away from Locust Street to avoid the cops, were still raided right along with the strip clubs under Frank Rizzo's administration, first as police commissioner and then mayor. Rizzo did not like anyone who was different from him, and that meant African-Americans and the gay community of Philadelphia. In 1975, Rizzo ran for re-election as mayor of Philly. According to a Philadelphia news archive, Mayor Rizzo told a reporter, and this is a quote, I'm going to make Attila the Hun look like, and then he said a word that I don't want to repeat, so I'll spell it, F-A-G-G-O-T. That was the mayor of our city. No big surprise, considering the words he used about African-Americans. When Frank Rizzo was a police captain in South Philadelphia in the 1960s, his district was infamous for harassing businesses he believed did business with a gay clientele. The police in Rizzo's precinct, under his direction and authority, not only harassed these business owners and their customers, the police arrested them. Rizzo became police commissioner in 1968. That same year, over a dozen women were arrested for dancing together in a gay bar called Rusty's. They were harassed and physically removed from the bar. I talked quite extensively about Rizzo's tactics of police brutality in the episodes about Move. And yet, a statue of this man stands across the street from City Hall and Love Park at the Municipal Services Building. In November 2017, the city announced they were moving the statue of Frank Rizzo to another location. Between protests from the members of the Black Lives Matter movement and the Philadelphia LGBT community, as well as thousands of people all over the city, Kelly Lee, the chief cultural officer in Philadelphia, told our local CBS News affiliate that the public's input was helpful in identifying possible locations for relocation of Mayor Rizzo's statue. In August 2018, Philadelphia Mayor Kenny announced Rizzo wasn't going anywhere, at least not for a few more years. Amid protests from both sides, people who want to see the statue gone, and those who remember Rizzo as a man who saved the city, the mayor explained moving the statue was low on his list of priorities. Between gun violence, the struggling Philadelphia public school system, the heroin epidemic in North Philly, I could go on and on about countless other challenges the city faces. Plus, he mentioned the price tag of 200 grand to move and store the statue until they find Rizzo a new home. Okay, I get it. Everything the mayor said about bigger priorities made sense. But it's pretty interesting how a statue of Kate Smith which stood outside one of our sports arenas, was gone in days after it was discovered she sang minstrel songs in the 1930s. I know that statue wasn't on a municipal building property. It wasn't on city property. But clearly, moving a statue isn't that hard when someone really wants that statue gone. The oldest gay-identified bar in the city is a brilliant spot called the Tavern on Kamak, as in on Kamak Street, which is a beautiful small street in the neighborhood. In the 1920s, Kamak Street offered places to eat and drink. There were charming little restaurants and tea rooms and speakeasies filled with bootleg liquor. One very famous speakeasy was a place called Maxine's. And after Prohibition was repealed in the 1930s, Maxine's became more of a gentleman's club, and the clientele was primarily gay. During World War II, 
military police would hit Maxine's looking for enlisted men who were spending time with what the military called deviates. Owner Ed Klein sold the bar in the late 70s, and the new owners, Ed Claren and his partner, Luis Rodriguez, reopened the bar as raffles in 1982. The bar changed hands again in 1999 and opened as the Tavern on Kamak. It's a cornerstone in the neighborhood, and I mention this spot because it's one of amazing places in the neighborhood around Locust Street, and that revitalization began with community support in the 1980s. The city may have turned its back on Locust Street for a time, but the gay community and their neighbors did not. While having a community where LGBTQ persons could feel welcome was so important, having legal, equal rights as other Philadelphians was vital. In 1978, a group of activists from the University of Pennsylvania known as the Christian Association formed the Philadelphia Lesbian and Gay Task Force. The task force was led by a man of God, the Reverend James Luttrell. More recently, Reverend Luttrell was the leader of the Anti-Racism Commission of the Episcopal Diocese of Pennsylvania. Working alongside Reverend Luttrell was Rita Edessa, the co-executive director of the task force, who is still a gay rights activist today. This task force focused on government reformations and changing the laws to provide protections for LGBTQ persons in Pennsylvania. They partnered with African-American leaders in the community to draft an amendment to the Fair Practices Ordinance in Philadelphia that would ban discrimination in housing, employment, and education on the basis of sexual orientation. It took a few years to get this amendment approved, and in 1982, with the support of then-Philadelphia City Manager Wilson Good, the gay rights bill passed by a near landslide vote. If the name Wilson Good is familiar, it should be. Wilson Good was the first African-American mayor of Philadelphia. He's also the man who gave the approval to Philadelphia Police Commissioner to drop a bomb on the members of MOVE in 1985. We have a recurring cast of characters in so many of these episodes. Speaking of recurring characters, in 1993, Mayor Ed Rundell and Philadelphia City Council member Angel Ortiz submitted bills to recognize domestic partnerships. After three years of opposition from City Council, these bills were passed due to an executive order by Mayor Rendell in 1996. One of the staunchest opponents was Philadelphia City Council President John Street. He said domestic partnerships undermine traditional family values. That's the same John Street who was elected mayor of Philadelphia in 2000 and then re-elected in 2004. His terms as mayor were filled with scandalous bullshit including his city treasurer who went to prison, his former law partner who was convicted of corruption. One of his biggest campaign fundraisers was convicted of corruption. He funneled deals to a particular Philly bank where he was getting a mortgage. But this guy said recognizing domestic partnerships undermines family values. In Rendell's executive order, he declared, Whereas significant changes in our society have resulted in the creation of diverse living arrangements and family relationships. While all stable families contribute to the economic and psychological well-being of the community, non-traditional families or domestic partnerships, as many have come to be known, lack the support and benefits provided to traditional families. Whereas the city of Philadelphia has consistently recognized the importance of equality of treatment for all citizens. In particular, the Fair Practices Ordinance prohibits discrimination in housing, public accommodations, and employment on the basis of race, color, sex, sexual orientation, 
religion, national origin, ancestry, age, or handicap. It is within the mayor's power to provide by executive order for the equality of treatment with respect to leave and benefits of exempt employees of the executive and administrative branch who are members of domestic partnerships. Now, therefore, I, Edward G. Rendell, mayor of the city of Philadelphia, by the power vested in me under the Home Rule Charter of the City of Philadelphia, do hereby order and declare as follows. The Administrative Board shall promptly take whatever action is reasonably necessary to provide that the domestic partnership of an exempt employee shall be entitled to the same health and leave benefits as a spouse of an exempt employee. Such action shall be made effective immediately upon its adoption. This order shall be effective immediately, 7th June, 1996. Edward G. Rendell, Mayor. After Rendell passed the executive order recognizing domestic partnerships, Catholic Archbishop Anthony Bevilacqua, along with Street and the Black clergy of Philadelphia, pushed to have the executive order reversed. Rendell said, piss off and refused. Sometimes these folks do use their powers for good. But Bevilacqua? Okay, he was the Archbishop of Philadelphia between 1988 and 2003. He was accused of participating in the cover-up of priests abusing kids. These are the people talking about family values? Philadelphia continued to strengthen our support of the LGBTQ community by strengthening legal protections for the more than 60,000 people in the city whom identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and or queer. The Fair Practices Ordinance, which was changed in 1982 to include protections against discrimination due to sexual orientation, was updated in 2002 to include gender identity as well. In 2014, the city recognized attacks based on gender identity or sexual orientation as hate crimes. Of course, that didn't stop the bigoted assholes from enacting whatever homophobic attacks they wanted on LGBTQ persons in Philadelphia. The catalyst for the expansion to hate crime laws in the city was a 2014 attack on two gay men in Center City, Philadelphia. There was a large group of young adults who had just left a birthday dinner party. Now, I've read reports that said there were anywhere between eight and a dozen people in this party. And when this happened back in 2014, you heard the same thing on the news because there were so many people moving down the street. I think it was hard to tell exactly whom was with this group and who might have just been passing by. So this large group of young people happened upon two young gay men who were walking at 16th and Chancellor Streets. According to witnesses, a member of this group asked these two men, is that your boyfriend? To which one of them replied, yes, do you have a problem with that? And that was it. This gang pounced on these two men while shouting homophobic slurs. One of the men was beaten so badly, he suffered facial fractures, which required surgery, and his jaw was wired shut for eight weeks. This was a vicious, violent attack. This gang of people were not from Philadelphia. They were from Bucks County. They came into the city to enjoy the amazing nightlife and restaurants, and while they were there, they decided to beat up two gay men. Initially, the city didn't call this a hate crime, which was complete bullshit. It was obviously a hate crime. Some of the attack was caught on surveillance video, and three people were arrested. Kevin Harrigan of Warrington, Bucks County, Philip Williams of Warminster, Bucks County, and Catherine Knott of Southampton, Bucks County. 
Now, both of the men pled guilty right out of the gate. They were given short sentences, probation, and community service. But 25-year-old Catherine Knott, whose father was the chief of police in Chalfont, Pennsylvania, pled not guilty. She was seen on camera throwing a punch. She was seen by witnesses participating in the attack. She was heard by the victims and witnesses spewing vile homophobic slurs. She did nothing to stop the attack, and yet she pled not guilty. In December 2015, Catherine Knott was convicted of simple assault, reckless endangerment, and conspiracy to commit simple assault. She was found not guilty of aggravated assault, which was lucky for her because that's a felony and would have carried a much heavier jail sentence. According to NBC10 reporter Deanna Durante, the jury had mixed emotions about their deliberations and their verdict. Some of them said that they did the best that they could for the victims. Others said it was very difficult interpreting the law, and some of them were quite emotional. The fact that she came into my city and did this to people that she knew nothing about, it's wrong. Joan Bellinger says when the trial against Catherine Knott first started, she thought the charges were too much and the decision would be easy. But then she says she heard the evidence against the 25-year-old. Not getting help and insinuating herself in the situation and not calling those crazy people off of them. And she said, yeah, this is fine, fine. We can call you anything we want. We can do anything to you because you're subclass. And it's wrong. Bellinger says the last three days of jury deliberations were exhausting and at times heated. It was hard because we had a few jurors. I won't even say a few, maybe like one or two jurors that just could not comprehend the law. Jurors say Knott's biggest defense, not getting help for the two men. On February 8th, 2016, Catherine Knott was sentenced to between five to 10 months in jail. In March, just one month after her sentence, Knott's attorney requested a reduced sentence, but Judge Covington refused. She said Catherine Knott's apology for her actions was disingenuous, and the girl's claim about not being homophobic was really false based on her social media posts prior to the assault. Catherine Knott was released from prison in July 2016 after serving five months of her five to ten month sentence. The actions of Catherine Knott, Kevin Harrigan, and Philip Williams were the catalyst for the city to add sexual orientation and gender identity to Philadelphia's hate crime laws in 2014. There have been other changes in protections for LGBTQ persons in Philadelphia. In 2013, City Councilman Jim Kenney, who is now our mayor, introduced a bill that included protections for transgender and gender nonconforming persons, including access to public accommodations, gender-neutral restrooms wherever possible, dressing in accordance with their gender identity, legal and gender name changes on permanent records, and gender-neutral language on some of our city forms. In 2016, the Philadelphia City Council passed a gender-neutral bathroom law requiring single-occupancy bathrooms in Philadelphia have gender-neutral signage. Today, Philadelphia is recognized as one of the most LGBTQ-friendly cities in the country. That recognition was hard-fought by generations of activists in and around Philadelphia, people who risked their lives and livelihood to live the way that they were born and for gay rights in this city. I want to take a minute and share a personal story. When I was about seven years old, my family visited a friend of my dad's for dinner. My dad's friend was named Bob, and he lived with his partner, Tom. I remember when we arrived at their house in Center City, I was amazed at how tall and skinny it was. I was only seven, so I didn't know Tom was Bob's partner. I remember asking my dad if Tom was Bob's brother. 
And my dad said, no, Bob loves Tom the way daddy loves mommy. They're a couple just like mommy and daddy. Oh, okay. That was it. That was how my dad explained same gender relationships to me well over 40 years ago. When I was a teenager, we had a conversation about dating, and he told me something along the lines of, it's hard enough to find someone who will love you the way you want and need to be loved, and that you can love in return. So if you worry about whether they're a man or a woman, black or white, you're just wasting time. Again, it was so simple. I know it's not that simple in today's society, but it should be. Your love for whomever you choose should be as appreciated as my love for Jeremy. Everything about you should be celebrated, appreciated, respected, and valued, no matter your gender, gender identity, or sexual orientation. If you don't feel those things because of society or your family or for any reason, please reach out to someone. We are the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection for all persons, regardless of race, color, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, religion, national origin, ancestry, age, or disability. Even if not all of us believe or behave that way, so many of us truly do, including me and the folks in the Twisted Philly podcast group on Facebook. So come on over. You'll be among friends and family. Thank you to my dear friend Jeffrey for the voiceover as Mayor Ed Rendell. Jeffrey is also a moderator in the Twisted Philly podcast group on Facebook. So if you join the group, you'll probably talk with him quite a bit. Thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this and almost every episode of Twisted Philly. You can find out more about Emmy on her website at emmysarah.com and download her music on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.